Hello and welcome to the Rare Possessions Podcast. We want to start out by making note of the fact that you can subscribe to our podcast in iTunes and Stitcher and other places where podcasts are found. So we want to encourage all of you that haven't yet subscribed to the Rare Possessions Podcast to do so on those platforms or even on SoundCloud. Again, thank you guys for tuning in this week. We have Jared Riddick, the archivist from Book of Mormon Central here, to talk about Chapter 13 of The Life of Nephi by George Q. Cannon. So welcome, Jared. How are you? Doing pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing okay. Uh, chapter 13 is a fun one. It we is. Have a, we have a lot of scholarship that's come out since George Q. Cannon on this particular topic that we want to delve into a little bit. This particular chapter talks about transoceanic voyages and this idea that people did this. It's kind of a, an unusual thought for people that look back on the past and think that they may not have had that technology or whatnot. But uh, John Sorensen has some research that he's done on this. Why don't you speak a minute to that? Yeah, John Sorensen has done a tremendous amount of work uh, involving transoceanic contact in uh, both LDS and non-LDS publications. And what does that basically mean in this time period? There is much more contact going on between the New World and the Old World than we had previously thought, certainly more than was thought in Joseph's day. So when we talk about this idea that Nephi was commanded to build a boat, a ship, some people that are, we might say, critics of the Book of Mormon have argued that this is far-fetched, that this, this is not realistic. Yeah, they have, very recently, as a matter of fact. But I disagree. While the idea of building a ship that would be able to handle that kind of voyage wasn't, you could say, wasn't standard, wasn't the norm, it certainly wasn't unheard of. There were people making these voyages. Where, where do we have some of, some of the evidences of that? Is there one particular example that, that we can look to? I know there's a lot more interaction between the Far East and Mesoamerica than they had previously thought. I know John Swanson's gone into that, and so have other scholars. For reference, for those listening, the featured archive for the Book of One Central Archive this week actually has to do with ocean currents and uh, Nephi's voyage. And we encourage you to give that a, a read. It's a, a short paper. And also in the Book of One Central Archive, we have an unpublished manuscript by John Swanson, about 190 pages, uh, dealing with transoceanic contact as a concept. A little bit longer, but it might be worth sitting down and uh, dedicating some time to. This is a, a really interesting thing. It's very much rare because it, it hasn't even been published. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he has an entire bibliography about contact with Martin, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, Reich, R-A-I-S-H. Sure, um, why not? Yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah. And um, we have a bibliography there, a lot of good work, a lot of non-LDS scholars that have been impressed by Sorensen's work in regards to that. There's some really great stuff here that both Latter-day Saints and the larger public aren't aware of. And for that matter, that goes to show some of the, the wisdom of the manuscript itself, or the Book of Mormon itself, that uh, it talks about this. Again, if, if Joseph Smith was instructing this, that seems like an awfully gutsy thing to put in there, yeah. given the knowledge of his day. One of the things that I found interesting in doing the reading for this chapter was the fact that there's a footnote within a footnote. Yeah, that was, that was cause I, I, it took me a while to actually notice that. I was like, where's footnote B coming from? I don't see it at all in the text. Yeah. Oh, it's in footnote A. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of like, how do, I, how do I actually read this in the audiobook format? So I just ended up reading the first footnote, not the footnote within the footnote. Yeah. So anyway, because it's long enough. It's like a full page, if not a little bit longer. Yeah, it's a, it's a long, it's yeah. a long one. So uh, in this chapter, chapter 13, we also have the introduction to Jacob and Joseph. At least their names are articulated. And I hadn't really considered how different their circumstances are in the Book of Mormon narrative in this scope of being in a family born outside of Jerusalem. So 
they didn't know what they were leaving. It wasn't like Laman and Lemuel that had some attachment to Jerusalem. These were individuals that grew up outside of that, shall we say, a temptation. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're born, essentially, born into poverty. Lehi even distinguishes this. My firstborn in the wilderness is what he calls Jacob later in Second Nephi. Almost like a very distinct set of children. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some speculations on, as to why he might have done that. It's a, he makes a distinction between Jacob and Joseph and the rest of them. The last thing that stood out to me in this chapter that I think is worth noting is that there's a mention of Sidney Rigdon. Yes. George Q. Cannon goes into a very interesting, I want to say comparison, with early church history and Sidney Rigdon and Laman and Lemuel, which that's the first time I think I've ever heard a comparison made here. But Yeah, it, was, it, it's, it caught me a little bit off guard, too. Yeah, George Q. Cannon probably knew him. Yeah, he, it, he was in an he early at least knew of him. Exactly. Yeah, there was some contact between them that where he would have at least known of him and seen popular opinion about him at the least. Yeah, but what's the comparison, and why do you think we have that even in the book? Well, you have the comparison. He brings up Sidney's uh, imprisonment in Missouri, and uh, gives this quote from Sidney uh, after he got out of prison. He goes, "I will." He says, "Sidney Rigdon said, I never will follow Brother Joseph's revelations anymore.'" Contrary to my own convenience, the sufferings of Jesus Christ were a fool to mine. And um, Sidney certainly doesn't come off great. Doesn't uh, sound faithful. Does not sound faithful, especially considering he was going to try and uh, be a steward for Joseph after Joseph's death a few years later. George Q. Cannon, is a, he, he compares him to Laman and Lemuel, and he's a little bit harsh there from firsthand experience. We have more speculations and opinions about Sidney now. We realize there may have been... There was some trauma, I believe. Literal, potentially brain damage um, from some of the things he went under his head being smashed against the cold, like the frozen ground. There was some things he had to deal with there. So we have a bit more sympathy towards Sidney now than people did then. George Kukana doesn't pull any punches there. No, no, he certainly doesn't. So anyway, this is a fun chapter, and we hope you enjoy the chapter and the footnotes. <laughs> and uh, so here we go with chapter 13 of Life of Nephi by George Kukana. Life of Nephi by George Q. Cannon, Chapter 13. Now that the vessel was finished, the voice of the Lord came unto Lehi that they were to embark upon the ship. It was still through him that the word came for a movement of this character. They had prepared fruits and meats and honey in great quantities, and provisions according to that which the Lord had commanded them. These, with all their loading and their seeds, and everything they had brought with them, they carried on board their vessel, and embarked themselves, every one according to his age. At this point, we find mentioned for the first time the names of two sons of Lehi, who were born in the wilderness, Jacob and Joseph. These boys grew up to be faithful and renowned men of God, and were a great help to their brother Nephi after they reached the promised land. After they put forth to sea, they were driven by the wind towards the promised land. We are not informed as to whether they used sails or other means to propel their vessel. But as they were driven before the wind, it is most likely, they had sails. They steered their ship by the direction of the compass which the Lord had prepared for them. Extended footnote. In this connection, it may be of interest to know something of the progress which had been made in the art of navigation at the time Lehi and his company made this wonderful voyage by direction of the Lord. The earliest record of the practice of this art after the construction of the Ark by Noah, excepting the account we have in the Book of Mormon of the voyage of Jared and his brother and their colony, is that of the Egyptians, who at a very remote period are said to have established commercial relations with India. This traffic was carried between the Arabian Gulf 
and the western coast of India across the Indian Ocean. It may be that Lehi himself might have been familiar with a famous expedition by sea which was fitted out by Nicho II, king of Egypt. For as near as we can ascertain, it was done in his day. This Nicho was the king of Egypt, against whom Josiah, king of Judah, fought when he received his death wound. He fitted out a fleet in the Red Sea, and having engaged some expert Phoenician pilots and sailors, he sent them on a voyage of discovery along the coast of Africa. They were ordered to start from the Arabian Gulf and come around through the Pillars of Hercules, now the Straits of Gibraltar, into the Mediterranean, and so returned to Egypt. This voyage was a daring one for those days. Through it, the peninsular form of Africa was ascertained, and the Cape of Good Hope was doubled about 21 centuries before it was seen by Diaz, or doubled by Vasco da Gama. These vessels of the Egyptians were frequently of large dimensions and were generally propelled by oars, though they understood to a certain extent the use of sails. We read of one vessel in later times carrying as many as 400 sailors, 4,000 rowers, and nearly 3,000 soldiers. There can be no doubt but that the ship upon which Lehi and his company embarked was in every respect superior to the purpose for which it was designed to any vessel known among men at that time. The Lord had directed its construction. He knew what was needed, the capacity required, the strain to which it would be subjected from the winds and the waves, and the length of time it would be upon the ocean in making the voyage, and it must have been admirably adapted to meet all these wants. End of footnote. Upon one occasion, after they had been out to sea some time, Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael and their wives began to dance, to sing, and to indulge in very rude language and conduct. They made themselves so merry and behaved so improperly, forgetting by what power they had been brought where they were, that Nephi became alarmed, for fear the Lord would be angry with them and smite them because of their wickedness, and they should go to the bottom of the sea. He spoke to them, therefore, with that soberness and gravity which the sense of peril inspired. But as usual with them, his words made them angry. They declared that the younger brother should not be a ruler over them. Laman and Lemuel were not content with speaking harshly. They went so far as to handle him roughly and to bind him hand and foot with cords, which were lashed so tightly as to give him pain and to cause his wrists and ankles to be very sore and swollen. They kept him in this condition for four days. It was in vain that his father and mother, his wife and children and others, pled for him. They could not move them to release them. Indeed, they threatened everyone with vengeance who spoke to them in his favor. This conduct nearly brought Lehi and Sariah down to the gates of death. They became so sick that they were confined to their beds and were almost ready to be consigned to a watery grave. Yet even this grief and sickness of theirs had no effect upon these cruel and pitiless men. Their hearts were steeled against the voices of love and affection. They were insensible to every humane emotion and every human appeal. Nothing but the power of God could reach them, and they were soon made to feel that. After they had bound Nephi, the compass ceased to work, and they did not know in what direction they should steer the ship. A storm arose, and it continued to rage with such violence that they were driven back, apparently at the mercy of the waves, and in great danger of being engulfed by them. This terrible tempest frightened Laman and Lemuel exceedingly. They were afraid they and all on board would be drowned, but they were resolved not to loose Nephi, even when entreated to do so by their parents and others. 
But by the fourth day, the tempest had become so frightfully fierce that even Laman and Lemuel were terror-stricken and softened, and they repented and released Nephi. They had to be threatened with destruction and brought face to face with death before they would yield. During all this time, suffering from pain and in a condition so wretched, Nephi did not lose his patience and self-control. Great were his afflictions. He did not murmur against the Lord, but he looked unto him and praised him all the day long. He was in circumstances that many men would think dreadful and even unbearable. Their faith would be greatly tried thereby and perhaps would fail. Our own church history furnishes a case of this kind. Sidney Rigdon, once a prominent man in the church, the first counselor of the prophet Joseph, was taken by a mob in Missouri at the same time that the prophet and others were, and was put in prison by them. His afflictions he felt so severely that he murmured about them and said, I will never follow Brother Joseph's revelations any more, contrary to my own convenience. The sufferings of Jesus Christ were a fool to mine. This doubtless was one cause of his subsequent apostasy, for he lost the spirit and never afterwards manifested the faith and power which he had formerly possessed. The Lord could have manifested his power in behalf of Nephi, so as to have prevented his brothers from binding him as they did, but it did not suit his purposes to do so. There are many things which the Lord suffers for the purpose of testing individuals or the people, and also that he may show forth his power and to fulfill his word which he has spoken concerning the wicked. The cruel conduct of Laman and Lemuel towards Nephi exhibited the wickedness of their hearts and brought them under condemnation before the Lord, and at the same time showed up in strong colors his faith and patience and the greatness of his soul. After Nephi had been released, he took the compass, and it worked as he desired it should, and he was able to steer the ship in the direction of the promised land. He prayed unto the Lord, and the violence of the tempest was quelled, and the elements became serene and calm. Sailing for some time after this occurrence, they reached the promised land. Thank you for listening to the Rare Possessions podcast from the archives of Book of Mormon Central. For the latest information on additions to the Book of Mormon Central archive, or to inquire about archive items like this one, visit us online at archive.bookofmormoncentral.org.